one. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Tim Phillips from Americans for Prosperity. I'm coming to you from Kalispell, Montana. So it's uh, the great big sky country. Uh, so here in the Kalispell area, uh, thank you for joining us for another Teletown Hall uh, with a special guest to kick this off. I'm going to introduce our great Kansas Americans for Prosperity State Director, Elizabeth Patton. Elizabeth, I know, is in our Overland Park office just on the Kansas side, the suburbs of Kansas City. Uh, Elizabeth, take it away. Tim, uh, yeah, I'm coming to you guys from Overland Park this morning, this cold morning here in Kansas. Although, as uh, Congressman Ron Estes has pointed out, it's getting a little bit warmer than it has been. Uh, so just thank you guys for taking the time to join us this morning. I uh, do want to introduce one of my favorite members of the federal delegation here in Kansas, which is Congressman Ron Estes, who has been uh, representing the 4th District since 2017. He has done a fantastic job and has been a great partner on some really important issues uh, to represent our state. And we're just really grateful for his time this morning. So uh, Congressman Ron Estes, again, thank you for joining us. And I think we'll just start this morning by asking about something that you and I talked about a lot last year when we were digging into how our country was responding to current events and what was going on. Um, as a former state treasurer, are you worried about the precedent for the state bailouts and how that uh, sets um, how that sets for fiscally irresponsible states to combat federal bailouts? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, um, I mean, thank thank you, Elizabeth and Tim, for for hosting this, setting this up. It's a good opportunity to talk about issues that are out there, and I, I kind of joke a little bit about uh, talking with real people uh, about the real real things that are going on, as opposed to some of the things inside D.C. And you know, we um, we went through a markup uh, last week in our Ways and Means Committee uh, over the portions of the 1.9 trillion dollar bailouts, supposedly bailout, that's uh, being talked about, uh, proposed by the Biden administration. And in, in reality, it's a lot of the, the retreads of, uh, of wish list items that Democrats have talked about for years. And, and you know, if, if you look at that 1.9 trillion, less than 10% of it deals with health-related issues from a COVID standpoint. And the rest of it deals with a lot of wish list items like like a state bailout, uh, you know, it's been a long time discussion. Uh, you know, several years ago, back when I was still state treasurer, uh, a lot of the discussion centered around state pensions. Uh, but now, just in general, uh, wanting to bail out the overall budgets of the state. And what what we've seen, I mean, we let me back up a little bit. And, and what we have done at the federal government, which I'm supportive of, is there's been some additional costs due to COVID. I mean, due to the healthcare related aspects. We've, we've provided additional funding for, you know, some of the extra costs of State Department of Health and, and the county health departments. We've provided some additional money for, for hospitals and, and providers for some of that extra work that, uh, uh, that they had to do. But uh, now they're coming back with uh, another uh, demand to, to actually just bail out typical spending. And the, the bad part about that, the, the deceptive part about that is that it's really not needed. I mean, 21 states already have have more tax revenue uh, this year than they did the year before. Uh, so, you know, in Kansas, uh, January is a, the latest numbers where they they announced the tax revenue. So, January in of 2021, Kansas brought in 10% more tax revenue than they did in January of 2020. 
so uh, obviously it's not necessarily, and now each state's gonna be a little bit different uh, and local governments may be a little bit different than, than the state governments, but uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to me to raise the federal tax rate, send the money up to Washington, come up with some formula and send it back to the states because the formula is gonna be wrong and at the end of the day, we would ultimately raise federal taxes in order for governors of the states to brag about not raising their, their local taxes. When in reality, they should be looking at with COVID, they didn't do as much travel. They didn't need to hire and, and replace some of the positions that people had retired from. Uh, so they're, they're really, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to, to go through the big, the federal government process uh, to, to just bail out the local government or the state governments. Yeah, you know, I, I, talking to folks out on the road where I am, uh, we had a breakfast just now, Congressman, with about a dozen and a half of our activists. And, and one of the guys there was saying, you know, it, isn't it true that hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars that were appropriated back in December for supposed, you know, for COVID relief and also early or middle of the year last year, is still not really been put to use yet. Is, is that accurate, Congressman? I know you keep a, a close tab on the details of, of, of what happens after the legislation. That's right. It's, it's approximately a trillion dollars of what was approved last year. We, we passed four bills last year, or five last year, and, and now they're talking about a sixth one. But of those, those five that we passed, and the reason I say four versus five is, only in the federal government can you pass a bill. The fourth, the fourth bill we did was uh, less money than the CARES Act, so it sometimes gets ignored as uh, one of the relief bills that were that were passed last year. So uh, there's uh, approximately a trillion dollars that hasn't been spent yet out of the money that was appropriated last year. We we appropriated uh, roughly four trillion dollars uh, for things like. The unemployment, the the support for the healthcare cost, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, and that money's still sitting out there. Either it hasn't been spent, or in some cases, like the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the deadline to sign up had been ended. So uh, we had to re restart that, and and uh, businesses are applying for it now. So it, it's way too early. I, I think what we're seeing is that. You know, typically presidents come in and, you know, they want to brag about what they accomplished in the first hundred days. And this is a scenario that the Biden administration wants to be able to say, you know, they passed a 1.9 trillion so-called relief bill, uh, when in reality, it's, it's a bunch of, uh, of the wish list items that they've had for years. Yeah. One more thing before I turn it back to Elizabeth on this legislation. Uh, I was in Madison, Wisconsin two nights ago, meeting with a group of our activists and a couple of college students there. Uh, who've been working so hard with Americans for Prosperity. And one of them asked about the $15 federal minimum wage, which sounds great, right? Oh, we're going to guarantee this. But in talking to these college students, they're the ones who are going to be most vulnerable or, or high school students getting that first job because businesses can't afford that. They're going to shed those jobs and the, and the folks getting hurt will be folks at the margins. And, 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 and it's so frustrating. Do you think that's going to be in this legislation? Where do you think that stands? I, I, know, I know you oppose it, but give us a sense of where that is. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the minimum wage is really intended to, to help be a starter job 
for high school students, uh, for college students who, you know, haven't started their career yet. Uh, it, it's not intended to be, uh, that's the, the livelihood, it's not intended to support folks. And so, you know, e even the Congressional Budget Office, which is no fiscal conservative organization, says that if you raise the, the minimum wage to $15 an hour uh, nationwide, it'll cost 1.4 million jobs. Because, you know, as we've all seen in the last few years, as, as more and more local and state governments have raised their minimum wage, We've seen a lot more of the fast food restaurants put in a order key, a kiosk, you know, to, to place the order. Uh, so what, what it's actually doing is taking jobs away from people. And, you know, my argument when I, when I go back to people say, well, you know, $15 becomes a, a, a quote unquote living wage. I mean, if, if, if that's all economics is, then why don't we make it $25 an hour? Or why don't we make it $100 an hour? And then, you know, everybody can be, you know, earn six figures uh, because we, common sense tells us that doesn't work. And so, uh, but yet they come back and, and make this argument that uh, $15 is, is the, the mantra they're gonna argue for. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's gonna raise costs for everybody. It's gonna lose jobs uh, for the folks trying to come into the workplace. They won't get those skills, the social and, and, and initial job entry skills that they need. And at, 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 it's gonna cause more and more businesses to go out of work because, you know, you can't, you can't run a restaurant, you can't run a, uh, a store in some scenarios with, uh, with paying so much money out as uh, a mandated, a federally mandated $15 an hour. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. And two things I want to highlight that Congressman Estes just said over the last two topics we discussed uh, were number one, that about a trillion dollars of uh, what the federal government has spent already related to COVID-19 relief has probably yet to be spent. And we need to be a little bit more um, thoughtful about further opportunities uh, to make any more decisions related to spending. Uh, and number two, exactly what he just pointed out about the federal minimum wage, uh, when we're looking at something that could potentially raise the cost of living for all Americans and cost jobs, and as Tim Phillips pointed out, um, really end up hurting um, the most vulnerable uh, in our economy in the first place. So um, just you know, I wanted to highlight those great things that you just said. Oh. And, and, and it's a, a, a federally mandated one size fits all doesn't make sense. Because, uh, I mean, the needs in Kansas are much different than in California or New York. And, and if, if California, I mean, San Francisco or, or Seattle wants to uh, mandate a $15 an hour minimum wage and, and run businesses out of, uh, out of business and, and lose jobs for their local uh, citizens, then uh, that's something that shouldn't be uh, pushed on Kansas as well. Oh. Yeah, uh, we're having one of the coldest, snowiest winters in a while, uh, we were talking about that right before uh, we started this uh, tele-town hall. Uh, and it's highlighting something that the Biden administration has been doing through executive orders. And now that Nancy Pelosi and, and your chamber says that she wants to do more of, and that's get away from American energy, get away from natural gas and oil, which has helped uh, make us competitive with the rest of the world, driven up our ability to compete on the manufacturing front, provided low cost utility uh, for so many Americans to heat their homes and apartments. But we're seeing right now some of the dangers, I think of that, of, of government picking winners and losers and, and, and frankly harming 
American energy that actually helps Americans, individual Americans. Do, do you have a sense of perhaps where uh, Pelosi and others might be going on some of these other energy issues, Congressman? Yeah, I'm, I'm really fearful of, of that direction that, uh, that they will take. I mean, it seems like that, uh, you know, even though it may not have been something that uh, Joe Biden had advocated throughout his career, he surrounded him fo- himself with folks that uh, really are the, the retreads from the Obama administration and, and in some cases, folks that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't capable of doing their job or aren't, aren't experienced at doing their job. And, and so uh, we, uh, I, I expect uh, through our Ways and Means Committee that we'll see a lot of uh, pro-tax incentives set up for the Green New Deal and the provisions around that. And it, it's all built on this, this uh, false perception. And in some case, you know, some of the data has been, been uh, uh, manipulated over time, but uh, that uh, we know what climate change is, that global warming is actually happening. And, you know, as you mentioned uh, this week, we've got the, uh, the coldest spell of weather in Kansas since uh, 1983, uh, in terms of the number of days of, of uh, you know, below freezing weather. And so uh, I, I think what we get back, we'll see out of this, we've had uh, electric utilities had to curtail and or cut off some consumers. We've seen a huge uh, spike up in the price for natural gas and, um, and propane, uh, which is used to heat. And so, there's going to be an ongoing discussion about this and it's already started the dialogue of, okay, so the, yes, some, in some cases, wind energy continued to work. Uh, in other cases, it didn't uh, because the weather froze up the, uh, the uh, wind turbines. And, and so uh, there's going to be a lot of argument back and forth about uh, the wind energy and renewables uh, continued to provide the same percentage the problem is that they leave out and always have left out of the equation is that you need a base load and you need to be able to handle the peak load. And when you have when you have extreme weather like this, just like you have extreme weather in the, in the summer, uh, hot weather, you need to have that good, solid, reliable base energy. And you don't get that when the wind doesn't blow. You don't get that when the sun doesn't shine. And you've got to have that, uh, that back capability. And, and so I, I think we need to make sure that we continue the dialogue about uh, let's, let's look at and all of the above. Uh, granted, I like getting, you know, cheaper energy. Uh, I think that's not been the, the case of what we've seen as some of these uh, renewable mandates have come on board. Uh, we've not, not been the case with the tax credits that are, that are brought out on that. And so we've got, to, uh, we've got to continue that discussion about what's the right way to make sure that we provide uh, good, solid, reliable energy for the United States and, and not go back to the way we were. I mean, you know, we, we over the last uh, few years, uh, we've become energy independent in the United States. And, and uh, instead of being dependent upon Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and, and Middle Eastern countries that don't necessarily have our best interest at heart and wanna make sure that uh, we could continue to, to manage and, and develop our energy needs and, and provide those for across the yeah, country. Before I turn it back to Elizabeth for the next question, uh, in being in Montana, you know, the Keystone pipeline that sadly, heartbreakingly, President Biden has canceled it's costing jobs and livelihoods up here, no question. And by the way, it's costing Americans uh, the kind of energy 
uh, again, that, that, that we need them. And we're with you. It's an all the above approach. We just don't want government picking winners and losers for ideological reasons. We simply want Americans to have cheap, abundant energy. You know, it's important to note, even as we've become the number one energy producer in the world, our emissions are down. We're doing it the right way. Uh, our emissions are down as a country. We're cleaner than we were while becoming the number one energy producer in the world and, and helping American manufacturing be competitive, helping Americans in their apartments and in their homes heat them or cool them with lower prices. That's a win for everyone. So it is an important issue. We'll stay on top of that along with you, Congressman. Elizabeth? Yeah, uh, thank you, Tim. And I think what you just highlighted is exactly the way that we um, ensure energy security for our country and we end energy poverty to the best of our ability uh, for Americans. And um, no, you're absolutely right. Um, Congressman, to move to the next question, uh, we've seen HR1 is back <laughs> and just wanted uh, to get your thoughts on, um, on HR1 and what are you worried about in terms of that bill in particular? Any, any highlights for us there? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the, the zombie apocalypse where the, uh, the uh, Democrats at the federal level want to take over elections. I mean, we have had, and, and intentionally, it was by design when the United States was set up that uh, uh, the states manage elections and, and, and make those processes work. I mean, it, it was specifically spelled into the Constitution that the state legislature define how, uh, you know, who the electors are for the president and making sure that that process was a broad base and open process because they didn't want they didn't want the judiciary selecting who the president was they didn't want uh, even the governor to do that because they thought that uh, uh, you know there might be some some corruption around that and instead what's come out of this HR one bill which was introduced uh, uh, last session uh, by the House uh, by the Democrats in the House and uh, is brought back up again uh, basically one of the things that we we talk about in the House is that you reserve HR1 for the bill that's most important for you, that, that, that represents the right policy you want. You know, in, in the 115th Congress, we talked about uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was, was our, our uh, first bill. Uh, that, and, uh, and the Democrats, they wanna take over elections at the federal level. They wanna make sure that taxpayers have to pay for elections so that uh, each of us as taxpayers would have to pay uh, six to one for donations raised, uh, uh, whether the, we supported a candidate or not, and take, take money out of our pocket uh, to, to work against policies that we think are important, uh, that the federal government will dictate what the states have to do, will override state laws on requirements for voter ID and, and other aspects that are, are indicative of, of, well, in my, my opinion, common sense. You know, the, that uh, you, you, you have to have a, a, a license to have a dog in some cities, and yet you don't have to show your license when you go vote in, in a lot of states. And we need to make sure that uh, a bill like that, uh, it probably will pass the House uh, because the House is so driven by the majority. And even though there's a, a very slim majority uh, of Democrats in the House, uh, but uh, because it is a big policy change, I don't believe it'll pass the Senate because they'll have to get 60 votes uh, to do that. But it, it does. it is indicative of uh, the partisan aspect of of wanting to take over elections and control that uh, on the part of the majority in the, in the House. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen watching, I hope you'll make your voice heard. You can use our Americans for Prosperity I Volunteer uh, link to let your House member 
and your senators know where you stand on these important issues, whether it's saying no to this $2 trillion boondoggle that'll drive us deeper into debt. We've been talking about that or, or uh, some of the energy issues that we've been talking about. In the links there, you'll see it, how you can get involved in Congress, but just, just for a moment. I know you hear from your constituents and, and when Americans for Prosperity or other activists out there take a moment to email you or to reach out to your office, uh, that makes a difference, right? Your colleagues, uh, they, they pay attention to it, I sense, right? Yeah, it really does. And in, in some cases, uh, for members that really don't, that don't understand the issues, that don't spend the time with people in the real world, that's that's the, in some cases, their only contact. Uh, and so, you know, if they, uh, unfortunately in the house, we have two year terms. So everybody's looking towards the next election uh, constantly. And uh, when they hear a, a lot of a, a message that their constituents want them to support a certain bill, it, it makes them stop and take notice that that's gonna have an impact on them when they run for reelection. And it actually does sway some folks uh, of what uh, what they, how they should vote on particular bills because it does have an impact on, on what their constituents want. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a senator yesterday on the phone from, from back east, and, and he said, you know, look, uh, even the good guys, the ones who vote right on just about everything, it's encouraging for them to hear uh, from supporters saying, keep doing it, keep doing the right thing, even when it's tough, even when the prevailing wind is a bit against you. So if you're listening today, watching today, and, and you go, well, you know, my member is like the congressman, Congressman Estes, or my senator, he or she is going to do the right thing. Encourage them. It's good to encourage you. Know, we, it's good to hold people accountable. Absolutely. But when they're doing the right thing, it's, it's good to let them know, I think. So we would encourage you to do that. Elizabeth, next question. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We never want to take it for granted when people like, especially like you, Congressman Estes, are doing the right thing and take the time to say thank you. Uh, and in here in Kansas, if you want to get involved, I know Tim referenced the links for action, uh, but here in Kansas, we have a lot of activity going on uh, surrounding our federal issues and also some of the things going on on the state level that we'll talk about in another call. But if you want to get involved and you want to get involved with our engagement directors here in the state, uh, please comment below or send us a message and we would love to connect you with the folks that we have here in the state and uh, help you make your voice heard. Congressman, one other issue that we touched on briefly before we started, and I'd like to talk about it now if we could, and that's the so-called PRO Act, the PRO Act. I know there are some folks uh, on, the, on the left and they think it's a good idea to get rid from the federal side to use this legislation to actually eliminate state right to work laws, uh, to eliminate the ability of a lot of Americans to choose whether to be an employee or, or to keep their freedom and be a contractor. I know that's an issue that you have dealt with before. It's come up before, but boy, it, it looks like it's a serious effort to get this thing through. Can you give us a sense of, of why it's not a good idea and maybe where it stands and the threat level. Yeah, it, this really is a, a, a retread of some of the previous things that have been brought up. I mean, going back to the, the Biden administration, going back to the Obama administration, uh, they, they, some of those provisions were, were being forced through on the regulatory side. But basically, it, it, it's all tied back to the folks that think 
big government is better than anything else. They think a big federal government uh, that they control, of course, uh, would, would be better for everybody across the country. So they want to mandate from the federal standpoint, uh, dictate all the, uh, uh, all the employment laws and dictate that uh, states don't have the, the right to uh, define what the, the work rights are within, within the state and, and whether you want the freedom of choice to be able to choose to work in a union or not work in a union. Uh, they mandate as part of this law that if you are, uh, that the employer has to provide personal information of all their employees to the union uh, so that the union can then call and harass and email and, and, uh, um, and as we know, in some cases, uh, bully people into, into voting for the union. Uh, the, the, the bill also talks about um, joint employer requirements. So basically, if you're a franchisee and you, you run a, a few restaurants like a, a Freddy's frozen custard or a McDonald's or something that you end up um, having to fall under the umbrella of the corporate entity and that they can unionize all of your stores uh, because of that. And, uh, or, or if you, if you um, hire an outside firm to do your janitorial work and clean your offices or, or clean your store, that uh, they can force that company to be part of yours under a joint employer requirement and, and dictate that uh, they can be one shared union for that. So it, it's a, it's really is a power grab uh, in, in order to make sure that the, the union members uh, and, and they, really the union leadership, because the leadership doesn't necessarily match up with what the, what the members want. And, uh, you know, the Keystone Pipeline, as you mentioned earlier, is a, a perfect example of that. that the the uh, Democrats talk about being uh, for the uh, union members, but instead they, they put a lot of them out of business just because they, they push a, a program like uh, putting out the, the Keystone Pipeline. So we need to make sure that we keep the state right to work laws, that uh, we rec respect the sovereignty of the states. I mean, that was the whole intention of uh, when we created the United States, when our forefathers created the United States, was that uh, we'd have a, a limited federal government and then we'd have uh, what's now 50 states uh, with the opportunity to, uh, uh, to develop and, and implement programs that work for them, that work particularly for them. So this is, this is one of those areas where it's really an overreach uh, by uh, the big government folks that want to take, uh, take over employment and, and manage and dictate all of that. Yeah, I mean, these top-down approaches we see out of Washington, I just can't imagine labor law in Kansas being exactly like it ought to be in New York or, or, or labor law in Texas being the way, the way it is in California. It's these top-down approaches, they don't work from Washington. They really don't. So before we turn it over to Elizabeth to, to close us out today, I want to thank all of you for watching. Uh, and Congressman, we face some big challenges in this country. We know that. Uh, but in talking to you, and I've known you for a long time, even before you were in Congress, um, what gives you a sense of optimism, uh, of hope that, that our best days, as President Reagan would say, are, are still ahead of us? As you travel your district, and I know you're in your district a lot, what gives you a sense, because I know you're an optimistic guy, I've seen it day to day, what gives you that sense of optimism about our country and about the way forward for us? We, we still have a lot of folks that love the country, love what America stands for, 
And a lot of times the media doesn't talk about that. So the story that gets, gets published is all the negatives and the doom and gloom. Uh, but when we look at uh, talking to folks uh, around the country that, you know, they want to go to work, they want to provide for themselves, they want to provide for their family, uh, and they're willing to, to, to make the tough choices in some cases. They're willing to, to put the effort out in terms of building, uh, building something that's good uh, for them, for their family, for the country. And that's, that's the thing that's most optimistic for me is the, the, the folks that are out there willing to, to continue on and, and continue the, the ideals that, that started our country. And so we've, we've got to promote more of that. We've got to make sure that um, the folks, particularly in, in you know, the, the Democrat enclaves, and which are, in a lot of cases are big cities, uh, they, they've gotten to the point where they think government's the solution and what they forget and, and what they, they're starting to see more and more of is that that big government process is failing them and it doesn't provide them what they need. And we need to get back and, and encourage them of, you know, these, this is opportunities that uh, uh, you can do for yourself in, in those uh, cities, uh, just like uh, around the rest of the country. Yeah, well said. Elizabeth Patton, our Americans for Prosperity State Director in Kansas, why don't you close us out today? I think what the Congressman just said is a great way to wrap this up and that we have some foundational principles that here in America we believe in and here in Kansas we're excited to fight for and we're just grateful for the members of our federal delegation here in Kansas um, who are great partners with us on some of these big issues that we're talking about. We have some big threats going on on the federal side. Uh, we would love your help. Uh, to make sure that we're doing what we can in Kansas to make our voices heard. So just grateful for your time, Congressman Estes. Thank you, Tim, for joining us today. And uh, hope those of you watching continue to fight with us for a better America for our kids and grandkids and continue to have that hope um, for the principles that we stand on. Thanks, everyone. Great. Okay.